You're listening to Radio Primavera Sound, proudly presented by Cupra. Hello, uh, my guest on Line Noise this week is Kirk DiGiorgio, a British producer, perhaps better known as As One, who's been in electronic music for more than 30 years, uh, occupying a territory somewhere between Detroit techno, home listening, funk, soul and jazz. Uh, we spoke about his classic As One album, Reflections, which uh, Barcelona label Lapsus is reissuing for its 30th anniversary. Uh, we spoke about giving up DJing, arguments with Warp, uh, Detroit, Mowax, and more. Uh, I really hope you enjoy it. And uh, do uh, go and get that Reflections reissue. Obviously, like one of the one of the reasons we're we're speaking is because it's the thirtieth um, anniversary uh, of Reflections. Yep. Um, how does it feel to celebrate like a thirtieth anniversary? Um, well, I, I'm never one to really look back my early material but um i do appreciate uh when labels want to introduce it to a new generation maybe uh, it really helps um me find new listeners i guess because i'm always releasing new material so even though i don't look back on my past material i think it it helps bring bring it all together as a whole bring my old material my my new material together for for a new audience which is something i'm always looking out for and think it's important not just to keep it within your bubble of fans but to reach out and try and reach some new listeners so even if you're reissuing something you won't even go back to have a listen to it it's just like well i know it's there I just check the masters, the pre-masters, when I send them to make sure they haven't deteriorated or developed any sort of digital glitches. Um, but then, no, I don't listen to them, no. Do you still think of techno as a future music? <laughs> yeah, I guess so, yeah. There's, um, there's some of it that... Um, is almost retro, I guess, um, a nostalgia because it's been, like you say, 30 years for for my tracks. Um, I think some of the new techno material is still very futuristic sounding, especially some of the more abstract, uh, harder club techno is, is very uh, futuristic still, sort of uh, working in non-traditional scales and experimenting with sound design and also the technology to make the music in terms of the amount of tools we have available today is you know you could only have dreamt of 30 years ago when i made reflections and i think the combination of the equipment available and the new technology we have to share the music i, I do think techno is still a very futuristic music because you have is your machine the club night is that still going i think the last one i saw advertised was last summer i think yeah um i don't know if you're aware but um i had a health issue complicated yeah uh, i i had covid really bad really early on and um ever since i had covid i just assumed it was this long covid that everyone was talking about i felt very fatigued a lot of the time uh, but i carried on as normal but then um i went into hospital for uh, kidney stone pain something completely unrelated and they found out that my heartbeat was dangerously low and it turns out 
that in all likelihood that bout of COVID damaged the lower chamber of my heart to such an extent that my heart rate was was half what it should be. And so I had a pacemaker fitted, uh, which is a very unusual for someone my age, quite young. But they see they said it was low enough to um, you know to merit one. And I don't know if you know much about pacemakers. I mean that most people go about their lives without it impacting them at all. But they they rely on uh, you know electro electromagnetic fields can interfere with the with the electronics. So I had to give up DJing because you can't wear headphones and you can't be around huge monitors and speaker stacks. You have to keep a good meter or two meters away from huge magnets. So I left machine with Ben Sims. Um, you know, I gave him my blessing just to carry on the parties. Um, I don't know what, what's happening with that now. Maybe he feels a bit reluctant now I'm no longer involved. I don't know that at all, actually. Maybe they are still continuing. But they're probably, now I'm not involved, they're probably less often. Sir, I, well, I'm sorry to hear you've been having health problems. Uh, I just all right I, now. No, I, actually, I did. I remembered um, reading an article, basically, yeah, uh, I guess last year, saying yeah that you were giving giving up DJing. I only just I only just remembered it when you said it. Yeah, with about the pacemaker. Just club DJing. I mean, I, obviously, I I can keep a distance from my monitors here in the studio and the microphone. I have to keep a meter away. I've checked it all out, and I've had the. Uh, pacemaker for over six months now and if everything's fine so um i can work in the studio and i can also do my radio shows it's just a club festival environment when you're having to you know many a time i've had to squeeze into the dj booth and rub up against huge speakers and you know the last place you want to be is in a, a festival and your heart you know your pacemaker stopped working so it's a, it's just a change i have to live with and come to terms with so what I was going to ask about machine, which I suppose does still um, does still make sense. I mean, I know you, I know you're not doing it, but that was a club night that only uh, played music that was under a year old. Yeah, yeah. Um, that was a very bold move. And when I was talking about whether techno was still future music, I mean, that kind of strikes me as like a a a way of saying it is a way of keep a way of keeping it kind of futuristic, right? Yeah, the, the motivation for that was um, in 2011, um, I, I was DJing um, a lot more than I used to. And I was the only one I, I seemed to hear on the lineup who was playing new music. Everything else was, um, it seemed the crowd were just waiting for someone to play Strings of Life for the thousandth, thousandth time or, or the bells. And I was just getting really bored. And there was so much good music out there that um, I approached Ben Sims, um, who um, obviously had had a probably a, a bigger following, club following than I did around the world at that time. Um, and I thought to get someone like him behind that concept as well as just me would, would, would hopefully work. And it really did. We got to the point where it almost became, well, we didn't advertise it anymore as a club that played new music because everyone adopted it. And I, so uh, without wishing to claim claim it was us on our own, but I really do think we had an impact on that. And the days of just hearing, you know, good life and the crowd going crazy, and then it being boring for the next sort of few hours, were gone. And everyone was 
was into new music and i also thought that opened the door for a lot more of the live performances where people could just you know jam and just test out new material or completely improvise so yeah that might be grand sort of claims but i really do think machine had a huge impact do you miss club dj by the way um well it's only been six months but uh i do i used to i used to absolutely love it it was nothing better than you know than than doing those machine parties so yeah of course going back to reflections which obviously released uh under the name as one um mm. as, as a lot of your, your music was yeah. um would it be sort of fair to say that the as one productions were intended for home listening at least in part yeah they originally it was because um i guess my first ep was on b12 and i wanted a way to differentiate the harder side of techno which i loved and the more melodic so that was from the very start future past was for the club material and as one was for the more sort of down down tempo home listening um i've broken the rules you know it's not hard and fast but it, it was quite helpful at the time because you know uh, rns were more interested in my future past material so i could sign to them and uh, new electronica were more interested in my as one so you could sign to different labels as well and keep it all separate i mean obviously you were recording for b12's label uh, and you were friends with plaid as well I, I believe did you ever sort of speak to warp about recording for them under the sort of yep. artificial intelligence series i had a, a disastrous meeting with warp um where they were signing everyone basically and yeah um i don't know how but the meeting got into the realms of the origins of techno and my inspirations and i'm from a black music background soul funk disco and they um how can i put this they they i couldn't believe it they they were um quite aggressively against that and i remember the guy's exact words were uh techno's not just another form of disco you know this this music comes from depeche mode and human league and it was an, it turned into an argument and we just you know fell out immediately there you know there was a vibe that was lost in the meeting i just sort of said well i i'm sorry but you know for me, this is a continuation, another black music art form that came from, you know, Detroit with Chicago <coughs> house influences, which is pure disco. And of course, there's there's that element of, um, you know, European music. Uh, the Detroit people always, you know, were fans of, of craft work and, and bands like that. But ultimately, you know, this is a new type of music for, for me. I've been into, you know, electronic music from black artists for, for decades. And they really, really seem to uh, go against that. So I don't know why oh, it's all water under the bridge now, but uh, the, the relationship has never been good since, uh, to be honest, I've tried to license the original ARTEPs, but because they've got warp uh but uh signed the rights over to warp um and yeah they've never allowed me to reissue them so yeah it's not good but uh, i don't know that 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 was a big thing around that time yeah 
there was a big sort of um you know the enemy and uh, uh, and such getting involved and jumping on this thing as a, a whole new sort of brand new revolution in music whereas you know for some of us well no you know we'd we'd had we'd gone through that more i would say with the electro genre which really did split people uh in the black music uh world you know soul soul fans purists really didn't like it and we jumped on it so well i'm interested in that because you said in an interview once that you were one of a small number of soul boys who didn't see detroit techno as an aberration yeah um, it was just a continuation because we knew some of the names as well you know i i um I saw you know some of the techno that was coming out of detroit and immediately saw you know someone's name who i'd been buying records from from 1983 you know, Juan atkins and you know and then uh you work back and there was there was all sorts of earlier electronic uh dance tracks uh things that were later on sampled in in some techno records things like electric funk on a journey on you know on prelude uh some you know some of francois kevorkian's mixes were incredibly techno in the way they approached which sound like dub techno to this day the way they um they treated some of them and even going further back uh tracks like uh, space base by slick it's just pure after futurism so for us techno was just you know detroit techno was just another continuation of that uh innovation of black american music why do you think though so many well other soul boys saw it as a terrible thing <laughs> yeah um well that's that, that's just the purism you know it's never never a good thing in any genre really i don't think and yeah like i said though it wasn't as um the animosity from the purest soul crowd wasn't as great towards techno as it was towards electro and in fact um some of the biggest northern soul fans were the biggest advocates for house and techno i'm thinking specifically of uh neil rushton and uh, the network label um so yeah that it wasn't as big a split as it was in electro i mean the, the soul djs at the time re just refused to play electro they absolutely hated it getting back to reflections i believe film was really important to it right uh probably at that time yeah i'm always influenced by by other uh cultural aspects that you know especially books um but yeah in those days probably film as well yeah uh, and also there's a lot of uh the, a lot of the track names refer to specific places um, yeah travel you know just just the usual thing i was very young you know sort of uh, i was only about 22 uh 22 23 maybe a bit older during the make, making of most of that album so i was always reading about places and uh yeah that probably had a big influence on some of my you know the imagination that i had when i listened to the tracks would it always be a case of um the the title coming later or would yeah. you ever right okay so it was like okay it wouldn't be like okay i wonder what you know this place no is i'm not um I'm not a musician, so if I get an emotion or a feeling, I wouldn't know how to put that down. I'm very technical when it comes to music, so I will just get into a zone and then uh, assign a title, 
you know, to to whatever came sublimely out of my subconscious, uh, you know, sort of fit it to a sound. So, um, yeah, no, I couldn't, you know, think of an exotic place and then make a, you know, a track that reminded me of that. You talk about being technical. I, I read in an interview that you used to spend a lot of time reading the manuals for drum machines. I know there are lots of producers who say they never read them. You know, it's just get, get the drum machine and, and start playing with it. Um, well, for a start, do you think that that's true? And for a second, like, why why do you prefer to read them? Um, I think everyone's got different approaches. Some some people are just not non-technical. They they just their mind just switches off. They're more like a musician they were just you know you put something in front of them and they'll make music out of it um whereas i'm not i'm not really gifted that gifted in that way i'm i'm more like i say i'm more technical i've never never grown up playing a musical instrument i still can't play a musical instrument i i have to work on uh you know if i do a solo and something i i have to work on it and then maybe edit it up afterwards i'm just you know it's just the the and a completely different part of the brain, I think, that works like that. So a drum machine, I'd probably know how to do the basics, especially now that I've learned. But at the time, I did have to learn everything from scratch. I wasn't one of those teenagers who, you know, my parents could buy me a synth or a drum machine like some of my, you know, people I know grew up like that. I didn't have anything like that at all. I just collected records from the age of 11, saved up every bit of pocket money or dinner money. And and so I was a collector of music from a very, very early age. I was just absolutely obsessed with black music from the age of 11. And I had a collection, you know, by the time I was 13, 14, I, I had a collection that, you know, most people in their 20 and 30, 20s and 30s now wouldn't even know what half of it was. So I was lucky in that aspect that I just had an obsession and I really rolled with it. And then you sold your records to buy to buy music making equipment. Most of it, yeah. I exaggerated that a bit. I sold most of it. <laughs> I had lots and lots of... Um, original like blue note recordings that were worth a lot of money and they some of them were quite sort of straight jazz so i sold sold most of those and got a few grand together it was only a couple of grand you know it wasn't anything huge um just enabled me to buy the latest roland uh, r8 drum machine uh akai s950 sampler a fostex eight channel mixer and uh, a dap machine to record it all on uh what else uh, uh yeah and uh, just a, a master keyboard a roland d5 um i then got a, an 808 very quickly from secondhand shop um some good speakers yeah it was, a bit, it was about between two and three grand i guess didn't that kill you though as a record collector since the age of 12 yeah. or 11 uh, working in a record shop so i just thought oh, i'll be able to get these back you know they're rare but that's what i dealt in at the time yeah, yeah record dealers who who I could you know once I started release you know I had a pretty much a hit with my first record so I could then easily buy those records back and by that time they were coming out on Japanese CDs so the sound quality was even better than the vinyl so you said that you're not a musician Mm. Um, and 
I, I mean, I, I get the impression you're being, you know, modest about it. But I wanted to ask, like, you know, you've been making music for very good music for more than 30 years. So what, what, are, what are you good at within music? What do you think is like you're really... Harmony. So, sorry? Harmony. Harmony. Yeah, that's what everyone says. The musicians, you know, classically trained musicians, very good musicians like uh, Jimster, um, Ski Oakenfall, um, you know, people who can actually play, Ian O'Brien, and they listen to my tracks and go, how the hell have you come up with those chords? That's just next level. And I'm like, I don't know. Um, so it's obviously I've got the ear for, for, for harmony, but they've tried to reverse engineer them and say, you know, some of the chord progressions I've come up with as a trained musician, you just wouldn't think of them because it's a lot of it is muscle memory and what you've learned with theory and leading notes going into that. I just break all the rules because I don't know what I'm doing. I just do what I hear and sounds good. And uh, I have studied the theory. I, I now I know what I am doing theory wise. It's just at my age, it'll be, it, it's just, ridiculous to try and start having lessons but i can you know find my way around the keyboard now but for years i, I didn't have a clue practically how would you write a melody is it literally a case of sitting at the keyboard and hitting keys until it, it sounds good or no um uh, one of the best ways is to vocalize melodies um i don't know if you know but as one is a duo now with myself and my my wife catherine I, no, no. yeah so the last two albums it's been uh well for the, the last album and then we've just finished the next album um yeah catherine my wife catherine prendergast um and she's just incredible at melodies and the my harmony and her melody seems to go together and i don't know how she does it she just comes up with you know she'll just sit in front of a keyboard it doesn't matter what sound she's got she'll just come up with a melody whereas i sing them and then find the notes pick the notes out um that's the best way to for me to do melodies but i think everyone's got their different way some people are more technical with their melodies and will follow you know what's going on in the chord progression and stuff like that but uh, no i tend to find singing them helps i love the idea of husband and wife um musical duos uh and i'm kind of fascinated by by how they work i mean is it because i suppose can can you can you just say, for example, if Catherine does something you don't like, it you know each other well enough that you can say, no, I, I don't like that? Or do you find you have to be more uh, careful because, you know, it's it's she's your wife and... and, no, and it's, it's brutal with me. And it's usually something she doesn't like that I've done that... Um, I don't know. It, it, if you listen to the last album and this, when you, when the next album comes out, you'll hear it's, it's the melodies are, are more upfront. Uh, whereas my uh, the tracks before sometimes the hook was the chord changes, and she just added these uh, melodies, and it worked the same way when I did the Beauty Room project. Um, my co-writer in the Beauty Room, Gennardo, he is uh, a musician, and um, it worked the same way as as well. He would do the melodies where on top of my harmony, and. Um, yeah, once if you work with someone that comes up with melody, it's a, it's a real sort of bonus, and that's the way with me. Whereas with Catherine, you know, it'll be more oh, I th you know, change that sound or change this sound. Um, 
with her, I really don't like anything she does. So, um, and if I do, it's it's something very uh, basic, like, uh, oh, I, I, can I change the sound? And she's like, well, I'm just using the sound to get the melody. You can do whatever you want with the sound. And then I'll do the technical stuff. So, you know, that's how it works. And it's a, it really works well like that. And who has the final word then? Uh, we both do, because often, you know, I'll sit there for hours mixing and uh, then and it's just great having a fresh pair of ears. And she'll she'll uh, come in and take a really good listen to everything, uh, live with it for a while. And she'll be really good at being that second pair of ears and, and even spotting things like the levels of the hi-hats are too loud or, you know, this and that. So, yeah, it, it does work really well, actually. So one thing I didn't know about you until quite recently was um, you've written quite a lot about music too. Mm. Um, in fact, I think I might be wrong. I think it, I came across a piece you did for Resident Advisor about LFO. Was that was that you? Yeah, I've, I've, I did a series for Resident Advisor called um, Carl. What was it called? I can't. A retro pick of the week kind of thing. It was. Mm. Uh, yeah, they just wanted, they were doing, you know, reviews and they wanted a classic review. And I did, I did a series for them. I did about 10 or 12 probably. And that was really good for going, going and interviewing, uh, you know, the remaining member of, of LFO and getting the backstory. And it was one of those things where, you know, they allowed me to go really deep into it, deeper than most would, you know, they, they were quite long. Often they would be twice as long and they'd edit, edit, edit them all down but um yeah it was it was really um it was really something that i really enjoyed doing i don't know if it's still going actually they haven't asked me for a while um but again that that was something i'm completely self-taught my grammar's not great so you know again working with an editor really helps um but i've got the knowledge so it's a bit similar to my music making really no, I thought I thought the the LFO one was really great. I came across it. I think doing some research. I was like, oh, that's really that's really good. Um, you once recorded for Mowax. Yeah. Um, and that's a sort of iconic label, um, driven uh, written, run by James Lavelle, who's sort of um, a fascinating character. I think. Yeah. Did you see the film about him, the man from Mowax? No, <laughs> God. I deliberately. I mean, I know James well enough to not want to see a film, you know, uh, because I, I can't, I can't understand some of the negativity he's got. When uh, my dealings with him were purely, you know, he loved music and he was so enthusiastic and he fought tooth and nail with major label who had, you know, bought Moex up to allow us the total creative freedom. And um, I, I don't, I've just got nothing but positive things to say about James. I didn't want to see a film. <laughs> I, I just, you know, just want to remember him the way that, you know, I used to remember him, you know, I was living in London at that time, I'd always pop in his office any time of day, and we'd just chat about music, and just go nuts about jazz and techno being combined and all this stuff. And, you know, then he went on to do other stuff, you know, and he hit, hit, went into a sort of more indie world. And that's not something I'm particularly interested in. So I just let, you know, I just want my memories to be of the good old days. And when I see him, we still, you know, hug each other and it's all great. So, 
No, I think he comes across well in in the documentary. It's, oh, certainly, it's certainly not like anything anything bad about him. I think it's like I, it's a while since I saw it, but if I remember, you know, he does reflect on difficult times in his life and kind of creative partnerships he had that no longer yeah. work. But generally, you know, it kind of no. He, I, I think he he came across. Um, it's, it's more the sort of not that I you know I doubt if he'd let it come out if it was negative but it's more the sort of uh, musical direction and the associations he got in with music that's not really my kind of thing you know and um, I love the producer uh, Matthew Puffer is another good friend who worked uh, with James on a lot of stuff I love his stuff that's more my kind of thing and I just I've got that kind of my nice memories and I just you know. <laughs> Want to remember Mo Wax and James like that? Talking of strong characters, um, your label released early music by Aphex Twin, for example. Yeah, um, among many others. What was he like to work with? Um, I didn't have much uh, contact. Uh, I've, I've only met uh, Richard a couple of times. He's a really lovely guy. Um, again, just someone who you could tell was absolutely obsessed with music. Just wanted to talk about music and computers. You know, a bit of a geek. Um, but it was very early on, you know, and uh, I um, I still love his music. I think he's incredible at what he does, but didn't really have much dealings with him. Um, I think um, it's a shame that that whole fan base sort of thing is, is so, I don't know, it seems so toxic. Um, a lot of a lot of his fan base and i really don't want to get involved again i just play the music and don't worry about you know silly arguments about whether he said this or that in the media that turned out to be rubbish i don't don't care you know he's a great publicist you know it's it's all part of his uh, persona and it's you know it's all brilliant so you know good for him and uh, i don't really take much notice of the other stuff Another thing I didn't know that you that you did was um, you composed music for adverts. Are you still doing that? No, I wish I did. It was <laughs> quite lucrative at the time. Uh, that that world kind of uh, lasted for a good few years, but you know, uh, since the sort of advent of digital music, that kind of declined as well. Um, haven't done that for a while. Um, it's quite hard you have to be very lucky to get into that world and i did have um a, a contact in that world that got me in there for a good few years that was really good enabled me to fund my other music my my sort of stranger music and uh yeah it was good but it's hard work because you're you're de essentially dealing with creatives who don't really understand the way music works most of the time most of them didn't have a clue and they'd, they'd ask you to sort of you know they'd only go by what they they knew so they'd ask you to mash up you know various artists that like they like the sound of and you like you really can't mix cuban music with metallica or you could but it would sound pretty weird or a lot of the time they just give you a you know a track by the chemical brothers or bjork and say can you copy this but copy it in a way that we don't you know get too close and i i always rejected those because uh it's not musically interesting to me even though you know, financially it would have been good it's just just not my thing really so um no it was really good when you got a one where you got a creative who just trusted you and said you know we like what you've done just go with it have complete creative freedom that's when it worked really well
Well, I was going to say the the Adidas advert you did with Prince Nassim, um, it's basically techno, like pretty avant-garde techno. You kind of smuggled onto this vast, you know. Well, that's one of the examples, you know, where um, I think a lot of the others were tracks, they'd picked tracks that I'd already had. Uh, but that one was was uh, the Douglas Brothers, I think, uh, produced and directed that. And yeah, we had complete creative freedom with the music. It was one of the things where they knew we knew what we would. They knew we knew what we were doing. They had, um, you know, a brief as to the kind of vibe and let us roll with it, and it was just perfect. I want to ask about Detroit um, as well. Um, I always thought that you and and B twelve. Um, were making, and this might sound a bit ridiculous, but like a British take on Detroit techno, um, in that it was obviously Detroit influenced, but it wasn't like a copy, if you see what I mean. Um, mm. How do you think you kind of came to making that sound? With me, it's a bit different. Um, I... I would say some of the majority of the UK and European techno that, that looked towards Detroit was a kind of attempt at imitation at that time. It's just they couldn't. Mm. And they ended up sounding different and bring and, and UK and Europe bringing their own influences. And I think sometimes that's where that lack of uh, the experience of a lot of the black music came in the music tended to be more ambient and more geared towards familiar sort of european bands like tangerine dream influences and stuff like that so it kind of that side of it whereas i brought my influences which were a lot more niche the soul and jazz influences but the way the biggest influence uh the biggest way I was different. My career was different. Before I'd even released the record, I was—I uh, knew the guys from Detroit from record collecting and going over there. So I already had met Derek May. I'd already met Carl Craig. I'd already met um, m most of them actually. Juan, uh, Shake—I uh, could name drop forever. I'd already met them before I started making music. So. Um, I, one of the nicest things Carl Craig's always said about me is what well, it was a two it was a two way street that he'd learned from me and I'd learned from him, and it was like that from the beginning. Like I said before, I'd even released the record, so you know I'd I'd be really, I'd be making music, and before it came out, I would send it to Derek and Carl, and they would you know critique it or whatever, and um, so. And then I'd, I'd, I even, you know, collaborated with Carl and Stacey Puller and it didn't come out, but, you know, we'd get together when, I, when I'd go to Detroit. So I'd say it was more collaborative than imitative so from my point of view. And, you know, straight away, my second release was released on Planet E. So um, immediately I had that, uh, you know, kind of connection and, yeah, it went from there, really. Must have been pretty amazing for your second, you know, second release to get signed to Planet E, you know, legendary label. Yeah, I mean, I wanted it to come out of retroactive because that was the label at the time. But Carl um, had plans to for his own label. And so he was like, no, nah, I've got this new, new imprint coming out called Planet E. And I'm like, oh, um, 
and also, you know, Planet E you know, sounded to me like a sort of reference to Ecstasy. And it was like, oh, I don't know, Carl. And he was like, look, trust me, trust me. The first release is going to be amazing. It's a m sort of mad mashup EP by, by myself. And when that came out, I was like, okay, Carl, yeah, fair enough. Put it out, have it on the second release as Planet E. It'd be amazing. Hang on, the first release on Planet E, was that Bug in the Bass Bin or? No, it was. Um, the EP he did where um, it's all sort of breaks and stuff. God, uh, let me have a let me have a look because um, I can't remember what moniker he did it under at the time. I'm just getting it up here digitally, so I'll be able to tell you. It was uh, it was uh, a play on the um, uh, uh, Jazz Funk Classics time, wasn't it? Oh, the six nine release. Yeah, it was it by six nine? Yeah, that was the first Planet E release. Right, right, right. Oh yeah, that's that's an amazing record. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and he did the pun on the jazz funk classics. So uh, yeah, it was great. And once I heard that, I was like, yeah, I'm I'm fine. You know, have it come out on Planet E. Did you? Um, you must have been to some good parties in Detroit when you when you visited, no? Like, uh. Mm, not really no um when i went to detroit it wasn't like it is now <laughs> it, it was scary it was dangerous it it wasn't you know it wasn't you had none of the gentrification at all it was still mostly well it's still a lot of it is burnt out but it was completely bombed out it was dangerous um you didn't really want to go out um unless you were with people and so no i didn't go clubbing um at that time the music institute had just stopped anyway and but when i when i was going to meet carl we just hang out instead you know or uh, when i went to see one i just go and uh, ask them where the record shops were and they were usually in in places where you didn't want to go uh, you know i remember stacy had to take me um a guy uh once one time i found a record shop probably one of the best ones right i got so much rare soul and um the guys behind the counter called me over and said uh whatever you do do not leave here until um your ride picks you up um which was stacy and i'm like why you know i could get a cab and they said no there's a guy waiting for you outside he's saying that you're buying a lot of records he thinks you've got a lot of money on you you know he's going to hold you up and they said just stay in the shop he won't come in here because we we've got protection here you know behind the counter or whatever and that was what it was like it was no joke you know it was uh it was mad and i'm sure the people who live in detroit have got you know uh, endless amount of stories you know, when I when I used to see um, Carl and Kenny Larkin, you know, Kenny got shot at one of the, you know, uh, at the time that I was going over there a lot. It, it was it was pretty dangerous. It's it's so much more different now. The fact that you can have a festival, you know, every year is just a miracle. It's just amazing yeah. the way it's turned around. And um, yeah, no, no, you, I I would probably just go to some crazy out of the way. A bar with Carl and and his ex-wife at the time, who was one of my best friends, and we just hang out. Or, or Carl would take me to the cinema, you know. And it was that kind of vibe, really. 
As an avid record collector and electro fan, was there a moment when you you had to sort of get over the fact that you were, you know, hanging out with Wan Atkins or something like that? You know, I mean, someone who had made yes. the greatest electro records of all time, you know. Yeah, it was it was a real that was a real thrill, uh, meeting Juan. Um but one of the great things about those guys, uh I mean contrary to some of the things you hear about their about ego and stuff these days i mean would you let someone who who just turned up on your doorstep come in your while you're working you know and just let you have around and look for your record collection i think i'd, I'd tell someone to go piss off yeah. but they he, he was like he wasn't happy about it he was like oh come in you know i'm i'm trying to work you know in his office um and he said, there's some guys here who can help you out. And uh, that's how I met Shake. Um, and he he showed us around. He said, you know, what are you doing here? And I said, Derek told us where, uh, you know, where you all lived and we're, we're record buying. And he said, well, you can buy some records. Juan said, you can buy some of my records if you want. So we just looked through his record collection, you know, and bought some records. And, uh, you know, it was really funny because Shake was going, you can't have that one. I want that one. And i didn't know you had that one and it was that kind of vibe you know it wasn't like who do you think you are you know you have to set up a meeting to meet us and it was completely down to earth you know it's like a community of people and um then an english guy matt cogger who i got to be good friends with he came downstairs he was running transmat's office at the time because derek was always in europe and he you know he took us around detroit a bit as well and we went out for something to eat and it was that again it was that kind of vibe so there wasn't a chance to be in awe of one because he he hates that anyway um he would probably say yes yeah, stop blowing smoke up my ass or something if you try to have that approach with him so yeah it was it was great you're listening to radio primavera sound Proudly presented by Cupra. 